This morning we're going to be doing part of an attribute and then the other attribute. We're going to be looking at sovereignty. We're going to kind of glance off of sovereignty. The only reason we're going to go there is because if you want to understand omnipotence, you have to understand it within the confines of sovereignty. And so we're going to talk about sovereignty for the first half, and then we'll look at omnipotence. Um, we're not going to solve all the problems with so sovereignty, and we're not going to go all the places that you're thinking about going this morning with sovereignty. That'll be for another class. We're just going to kind of glance off it. All right, so let's begin by talking about sovereignty. What is sovereignty? Joel Beakey gives us a definition, and we'll, we'll flush this out a little bit more. Sovereignty means supremacy which involves the divine will, authority, and power, for God is supreme over all his being, rights, and ability to reign and accomplish his will. We've been talking about God over the last few weeks, that God is the incomprehensible one, that he is the highest thing that you can conceive of, that he is superior to all of creation, that everything that exists, he is above and beyond all of it. He is the only infinite being. And because of who he is, because of what he is, he rules and reigns over all things. By virtue of his very nature, he has to be the supreme one. He has to be the sovereign. God is the creator. And because God is the creator, he is also the owner. If I were a carpenter, which I'm not, but if I were a carpenter and I were to build a desk, I can do with the desk as I please. It's mine. I can set the desk up in my office and study on it, or I can take it outside, thank you, and I can burn it. It's my desk. I can do whatever I want with it. God is the creator of the universe. He can do with it as he pleases. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. He, is ble uh, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He made it all. He owns all of it. It's his. Deuteronomy 10, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in it. He is the supreme being. He owns everything that is in heaven, and he owns all of creation, all of the earth and the universe, and he owns everything on the earth. There is nothing that God does not own because God made all of it. Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. You might be a rancher, and you might have some cows on your ranch. You're just borrowing those. They belong to God. They are his. He owns them. You are just a steward of what God has given you to possess while you're here. They are his. He owns the cattle, and he owns the hill. That's so small. Psalm 95, For the Lord is great, and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are also his, the sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands who formed the dry land. Why does God own all of it? Why is it all his? Because he made all of it. And that's true whether you're talking about the birds of the air, or the fish in the sea, or the people that are walking around on the land. Everything in the world is possessed and owned by him. He is the ruler over all of it. Exodus 18.11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, 
Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Even if you want to be a polytheist and say that there are other gods, it doesn't matter. Because none of those gods match anything close to who Yahweh is. None of those gods are infinite as Yahweh is. None of them match his power. None of them created anything. And so even if you want to say, well, I have my own God, your God is not sovereign. He owns nothing. He has no authority. Yahweh has the authority. He has dominion over everything. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion. O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. That term there for dominion, do you know what it means? It means one who rules as a king. That's the idea. He is the king. When we're talking about sovereignty, we talk about the United States as a sovereign nation. We're talking about his authority to rule. Rule as king. This is absolute authority. Unquestioned authority. He made the earth. He made the heavens. He rules over them. He also made and established all of the nations. The borders of all the nations were established by God. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. Every nation on this planet was conceived of, put together, built, established by God. And the authority of the nations is granted to them by God. That's why we call Jesus the King of Kings. Because he is sovereign over even the kings of the nations. Because he made them. He established them. 1 Chronicles 29.11 For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. You may like this president. You may dislike this president. He's still God's president. God rules over all the nations. He establishes leaders. He appoints leaders. He is the sovereign one. So let's sum up this idea of sovereignty. God is the creator of all things. And because God is the creator, he is superior to all. He owns everything, and he has a right to rule over everything. And because God has a right to rule, he can also accomplish his will. He can do whatever he wants. So that leads to the question. When we talk about the will of God, when we say God's will, what are we actually talking about? What does that mean to say God's will? I want to do God's will, or this was the will of God. What do we mean by that? Wayne Grudem gives this definition that's helpful. God's will is that attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself 
and all creation. God approves. God's will, you could say, is what God desires, what God wants. And he determines, he decrees, what will and will not come about. Everything that happens, happens because God has willed that to occur. He desired it, and he determined and decreed that it was to occur. Everything that God has done, everything that has occurred, the Bible speaks of it as occurring because it is God's will. Uh, God created. He created according to his will. Everything that happens, happens because God willed it to occur. Ephesians 1.11 We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. You're not predestined because you chose it. You're not in Christ because you decided, ultimately. All things occur because God determines that they are to occur that he decrees them, that they are part of his plan, of his desire, of what he wants. As I said earlier, human governments are established according to God's will. You guys remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar? This very proud king who looked upon Babylon and all the things that he had built King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. God gave you sovereignty, he's taken it back. Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it upon whomever he wishes. All according to what he desires. This president is according to God's will. The next president will be God's will. The death of Christ and all the events that led up to the death of Christ are all according to his will. That's in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Christians are called to suffer according to the will of God. It's God's desire and his will, his determined plan that Christians will suffer. Your life will unfold according to God's will. James makes the argument, look, don't say this is what I'm going to do tomorrow. And he says that because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may not be around tomorrow. You say, no, 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 if it's the Lord's will, then I will do this tomorrow. So when we talk about the will of God, I've already kind of mentioned this, but we have different kinds of God's will. And we're going to make some distinctions because that's what theology does. It makes distinctions. And I know distinctions sometimes get confusing because there's a lot of them. But distinctions also help us understand what we're actually discussing. And there's two different types of God's will or two different aspects of God's will that we want to discuss. The first is called his necessary will. The necessary will. It refers to everything that God must will according to his nature. Uh, we were talking yesterday in the men's breakfast about free will. And if you define free will as merely being able to do anything you desire, 
and that there is no limitation on what you can will or decide to do, then God does not have free will. Because there are things that God cannot will. Everything that he wills must be in alignment with his nature. God is holy, which means he cannot will something that is sinful. God is loving. He cannot will or desire something that is unloving. All of his attributes determine how he decides and how he chooses and what he chooses. That's his necessary will. Then there is the free will. And by that we mean it refers to those things God willed that are not dictated by his nature. His nature does not mandate that he chooses Nebuchadnezzar to rule as king of Babylon. He could have picked somebody other than Nebuchadnezzar. His nature does not rule and dictate that you must be a member of Grace Bible Church. He chose you to be here for another reason, right? That is his free will. But even God's free will is still restrained by his necessary will. He cannot choose something in his free will that would violate his nature. Is everybody following me? Is there any questions on that? Make sense? Okay. So let's look at some examples of God's free will. Creation. God was not required to create. There's this really popular, used to be really popular, there's this little poem, and it's supposed to be creation from God's perspective, but not from Genesis 1 and 2. And in the poem, God apparently says, or realizes, that he, he created you know, the whole world and all the animals, and then God said, I'm lonely still. Like, you know, God has a hole in his heart and it's man-shaped and he needs humans to, to make himself feel better. That assumes that God had some kind of deficiency. Well, we talked about deficiencies, right? Who has deficiencies? And because we have deficiencies, that means we do what? We change. God is immutable. He never changes because he has no deficiencies. God didn't create because he needed something. He doesn't need anything. What's the doctrine that we talked about several weeks ago? That God is completely self-sufficient. Someone said it. Aseity. He created merely because he willed to do so. He created merely because he wanted to. This was not a forced decision. His nature did not require him to create. He could have existed for all of eternity in the future, completely by himself with nothing else. And he would have been perfectly satisfied. He was not required to create. This is an act of his free will. God's free will is unhindered by anything outside of himself. It's completely unhindered. Now, I learned as a kid that was not true for me. Because I had this dream that I could fly like Superman. You, you realize where I'm going here, right? And even if you will to fly, I wasn't brave enough to jump out of a tree to try it, but I tried jumping in there to try to fly, and it didn't work. My free will was hindered by gravity. There was something I wanted to do that I could not do. God's free will is completely unhindered. 
It's unhindered by circumstances. It's unhindered by his creation. And it's certainly not hindered by anything we choose to do or not to do. Just look at how scripture talks about God's will. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? Who's going to stop God from doing what he wants? Nobody. He has free will over the actions and decisions of the king. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. There was a congressman not too long ago who essentially said, these aren't his exact words, who essentially said, God's will has no place in the U.S. Congress. That's arrogant. The Bible says, no, the, the heart and the decisions of a king are like water in the hands of God. Now, God doesn't have hands, but it's an anthropomorphism. It's just making God haveable. Think about if you hold water in your hand. Can the water do anything to stop you from pouring it out? You can manipulate and move that water around as you choose. That's what he says about the desires and the will of a king. God can manipulate, change, and move that king around any way he desires. And there's nothing the king can do about it. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Really puts us into perspective, doesn't it? Because here you're clay. We're dirt with mud. I'm sorry, we're dirt with water. We call it mud. If you were a potter and you made a pot, and imagine for a moment the pot could actually speak, and you made this pot and you decide, well, I'm going to take the pot, I'm going to set it outside, and I'm going to put a cactus in it. And the pot looks back at you and goes, excuse me? I'm an inside pot. You don't put me outside. I'm supposed to be serving the meals. You don't put me outside. You think that pot has a right to tell you that? Now, no, that's kind of silly because pots don't talk, but that's what he's saying here. For a man to turn back and tell God, you're doing this wrong, you don't have the ability to do this, you don't have the right to do this, is for a man to say that God's will is hindered, that God cannot do something because we don't want him to. God can do whatever he chooses. Now, his free will is not indifference. This isn't arbitrary, you know, some, like a little kid with a magnifying glass burning ants. It's not completely arbitrary. Every act of God's will is backed by perfect logic and perfect knowledge. We talked about God's omniscience last week. Knowing perfectly. Every act that God performs, he performs, and it's thought out perfectly. Now, I'm going to say thought out because we think of being thought out as in we one thought after another, and we think through the decision. But God has the perfect solution, knows the action perfectly. He knows all the results of it, and he knows that that action will be the thing that brings about his good pleasure these events will be most glorifying to him. And the end result will be most satisfying to him. And he knows that long before he ever makes the decision.
Okay, that's necessary and free will. Any questions on necessary and free will of God? No. Yes, go ahead. Um, yeah, no, God doesn't change his mind. Um, those are God expressing himself in a way that we can understand. Um, so there's other places where he says he was grieved or um, he regretted making Saul king. And it's his attempt to explain his hatred of that particular action in a way that people understand. I think there's there's both of those that are present in Scripture. One of them is God um, making himself haveable, bringing himself down to our level to express his view of that particular incident. Another one happens where God says, if this occurs, this will happen. If this happens, then this will happen. He's giving all the possibilities. So last week we talked about David going to the city of Calah, and he rescues the city of Calah, and Saul comes down to find him. And David turns to God and says, hey, are they going to turn me over or are they going to protect me? And God says, they'll turn you over. And so David leaves. So does that answer your question? Yeah, I, was, I mean, it wasn't really so much a question. Yeah. Punter? Yeah. I would say, you know, if, if he's giving the options that would fit under his, his free will to do as he chooses. All right. Anything else? Yes, sir. It's amazing how God asks people questions. Like he, he asked uh, Jacob, what is your name? It's like, you know better. You, you already know the answer to this question, right? But he, he has a purpose in asking. All right, let's, uh, there's two other aspects to God's will that we want to talk about. The, the first two, necessary and free will, refer to how God's, God's will relates to himself. How God's will relates to himself. The second set that we're going to look at refers to how God's will relates to us, to his creation. And there's two of them. Revealed will, which is also called the perceptive will, the will of precept, and the secret will, or the decretive will. This is how God's will relates to man. The revealed will, what do you think that refers to? I'm sorry? Everything revealed, right? It refers to the revelation of God, to God's law. So, 
for today, it would refer to Scripture. This is what God expects you to know and how he expects you to live. The secret will refers to the events that God has decreed to take place, but we don't know yet. So what are some things that might be a part of the decreed will of God? What are some things that God has decreed already, but we don't know what they are? When Christ will return, someone said tomorrow. Tomorrow, any others? Yeah, so um, tomorrow, we don't know what the stock market is going to do. The day of your death, you don't know when that's going to be. Uh, who will and will not be saved? We don't know the answer to that either. These are all part of God's secret will. Things that God has decreed that we don't know. There's one major key text for this distinction. Anybody know where that is? It refers to things that have been revealed and things that are secret. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. There are some things we just don't get to know. And there are other things that God expects you to know and that he has revealed them and he expects you to follow what he has given. Some characteristics of each of these. The revealed will can be known. Like we've already said, it's found in Scripture. The revealed will is there to help you know how you are to live, what you are supposed to be doing. Um, most references to God's will in Scripture are going to be under, the, under this idea of his revealed will. Most of the time when you open up Scripture and it says God's will, it's usually talking about his revealed will. A um, couple examples. Matthew 7, 21. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is Jesus speaking. He's speaking about those who will and will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he says the ones who enter are the ones who do the will of my Father. Well, the only way you would be able to do his will is if you know what it is. So this has to refer to his revealed will. Uh, Ephesians 5.17, understand what the will of the Lord is. The only way you're going to be able to understand it is if he reveals it to you and shows it to you. This has to be a reference to his revealed will. 1 John 5.14, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us again. How do you ask according to his will if it's hidden from you? This has to be a reference to his revealed will. And then there's the secret will. Just a summary of it. God decrees all things that occur. Not all of these are going to be revealed in Scripture. Sometimes he gives part of a secret will to us. So we do have revelation about what will happen at the end, which was part of God's secret will, but he revealed it to us. And it's known through the passage of time. You can learn the secret will of God. You just wait a few days. If you want to know what the secret will of God is for tomorrow, you just wait 24 hours and you'll learn. But this should also be a comfort to you because you hear people who will say, well, I did this, but I don't know if that was God's will for me. And the answer to that question is, did you do it? Well, yeah, that's what God wanted you to do. 
And that's not to say that God is responsible for your sin. But it is to say that that was all part of God's plan for your life at that time. That's what God wanted for that day. If it comes to pass, it's part of God's decreed will. Um, there are some examples that refer to the secret will of God in Scripture. We talked about this one, James 4.15. The day of your death is not revealed, which should encourage unbelievers to repent and turn to Christ. It should encourage believers to live every moment for Christ because it might be your last few. Genesis 50, this is a classic text on this. Joseph, you know, Joseph, as you read through the story of Joseph and his brothers sell him into slavery, I'm pretty sure he wasn't saying, you know what? God has great things for me here. I'm going to end up in Egypt and I'm going to save a whole bunch of people's lives. I'm pretty sure that's not what was going through his head. And then when he gets to Egypt and he finally ends up in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife accuses him falsely, I'm pretty sure he didn't say, this is it. This is my big break. Yeah, God was with him. But I don't think he had a lot of confidence that this was going to turn out temporally the best for him. And the same thing in prison. When the guy said, yeah, sure, I'll remember you before the king. And then he forgot him for another two years. It's only when Joseph looks back on his life that he sees this is the, the hand of God. This was the secret will of God. It was only through being sold into slavery, being falsely accused, being sent to prison for 12 years. It's only through all of that that Joseph was finally in a position where he could save and preserve many people. All right, any questions on sovereignty and the will of God? No questions, okay. We're going to move on here. So we're, we're talking about God's will. God is sovereign. God is supreme over everything. God does what he pleases. God accomplishes what he wants. How is God able to do so? How is God able to accomplish everything he desires? He's able to accomplish it because God has omnipotence. And we have to understand omnipotence within the view of God's sovereignty. Some of these are going to seem a little redundant because I'm going to go through what's, um, uh, what omnipotence is not. And because we just talked about sovereignty, some of these you're going to be like, duh. Um, omnipotence is not. God's power is free from all restraints of reason and morality. There are some people who have come up with these theories, the scholastics and philosophers have come up with theories, that God being omnipotent means that God can just do anything he wants. Just anything, completely arbitrary, with no reason, no logic. It's not the ability for God to do something beyond his power. Um, a good example of this, people ask, well, can God create a rock so big that he cannot lift it? Well, when we're talking about omnipotence, that's not even what we're talking about. We're not saying that, that that reduces omnipotence to the point of absurdity. 
That's a ridiculous question. Why would God even want to do that? It's not even a part of his will. Joel Beakey said, we should not make omnipotence into nonsense. And that's what philosophers do when they ask questions like that. It's just, it makes it complete nonsense. Omnipotence is not the ability for God to decree contradictory things. Well, God can do anything. Therefore, if he can do anything, that must mean he can create a circular square. No, he can't. He can't make north-south and the south-north and the east-west. They're contradictory. He also cannot annihilate himself and will himself to no longer exist. And what the philosophers and the, the scholastics will say is, yes, but if you say that, then he cannot be omnipotent. The only way God can be omnipotent is if God can do these things. Otherwise, he doesn't have all power. But that's not how we define omnipotence. Omnipotence doesn't mean that God can be contradictory. That God can will things that destroy himself. Omnipotence is not the ability for God to do anything against his own character. But we already talked about the, re the necessary will of God. God can only act within the confines of his nature. And so in that sense, we can say that God cannot do anything. We can't, when we say God can do anything, what we're really saying is God can do anything that he desires to do. But there are some things God has no desire to do. God can do anything he wills to do. But there are things that God has no will to do. And will never do. Let's look at some examples. I know those are... He cannot deny himself. Uh, he cannot be tempted by sin. He cannot be tempted by it. And he cannot tempt anyone to it. God simply cannot do that. God cannot lie. It would be to violate his own nature of being holy. And in case people don't think that's clear enough, it is impossible for God to lie. No, seriously, he cannot lie. Wayne Grudem said, although God's power is qualified by his other attributes, I should have put, God's power is qualified by his other attributes. All the attributes of God work together. Every attribute we've talked about so far works in perfect harmony with every other attribute. God's holiness affects every single one of his other attributes. God is omnipotent. We're going to talk about what that means in a minute. But God is omnipotent, and that is a holy omnipotence. That is a loving omnipotence. That is a just omnipotence. That is a wise and omniscient omnipotence. You can't take one attribute and pit it against the others. And to say omnipotence means that God can sin is to say that God's omnipotence is contrary to his holiness. To say that God can will to annihilate himself or to no longer exist is to say that God's aseity is now opposed to his omnipotence. Does that make sense? Wayne Grudem continues, This is another instance where misunderstanding would result if one attribute were isolated from the rest of God's character and emphasized in a disproportionate way. You've got to understand simplicity, that all of his attributes work together. Okay, let's get some simple definitions of uh, 
omnipotence. Louis Burkhoff, we'll start with the more complicated ones. Power in God may be called the effective energy of his nature, or that perfection of his being by which he is the absolute and highest causality. Okay, that's not exactly a simple definition. Um, let's go with this e- a much easier one. God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. It's a very simple, easy definition. God is able to do all his holy will. Omnipotence means that God has the ability to do what he desires. God's freedom means that nothing outside of him constrains or restricts the exercise of that power. What God wants to do, he has the power to do. And what God decides to do, he accomplishes. That's omnipotence. Whatever he decides and whatever he desires, he accomplishes. Omnipotence. The term comes from two words. Omni, which means all, and potens, which means powerful. So to be omnipotent means to be all-powerful. All right, so when we talked about eternality, we had to define what? Time. We talked about omnipresence. We had to define space. What do we need to define here to understand this? Power. What do we mean by power? When we say that God has all power, what what are we talking about? Let's start with the human power and understand power from our perspective. Power is the ability to produce a desired effect. It's the ability to produce a desired effect. And our power is limited. It's finite. Um, Here's my clicker. The desired effect is I want my clicker to move from here to here. I have the power to make that effect. But our power, human power, is limited. It's limited by our thoughts, our knowledge, our ability to conceive and to comprehend. And it's limited by our physical abilities. There are some things that I cannot move. I can move my clicker pretty easily. But if you ask me to pick up the building and move it, that's beyond my power. So let's kind of walk through power. Your mind makes a decision to produce a given effect. So let's say you're hungry. And you decide you're going to make a PB&J. Everybody knows what that is, right? Okay. You're going to make a PB&J, and that's what you're going to do. You've made a decision... And in your mind, you have thought of all the things that you need to do in order to make the sandwich. Your mind automatically goes through and thinks about all the resources you're going to need, the time that it's going to take, and the process that you're going to have to go through to make the sandwich. And then once your body, once your mind makes those determinations, your body then moves in accordance with the directions of your brain you then go and act on what you've thought of. But beyond this process, you have no ability to directly produce effects. If you want to produce an effect, you have to think it through, and then you have to act. That's the only power that you have. 
Charles Hodge said, it is only our thoughts, volitions, and purposes together with certain acts of the body that are immediately subject to the will. For all other effects must avail ourselves of the use of means. In order for me to cause something to happen, I can't just sit here and think about it. Sitting on the sofa thinking about the process of making a sandwich still doesn't give me a sandwich, does it? I have to act. I have to do something. So, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go make the sandwich. Now, the first thing I have to do, Hodge says, is I have to use means. I need some bread. And I have to acquire bread from somewhere because I am not God and I cannot create it ex nihilo. I can't create bread out of nothing. So I have to use means to acquire bread. A couple different ways you can do this. You can become a farmer, grow some wheat, have some cows, do all that. You can go to the store. You can borrow it from a neighbor. It doesn't matter what means you choose to use to acquire the bread. But you have to use some kind of means to acquire the bread so you can actually make the sandwich. And then you have to do the same thing with everything else you're going to need. The plate, the knife, the peanut butter, the jelly, all of those things you're going to have to acquire somehow. And so your body goes about and you go about gathering the materials that you need to make the sandwich. And once you have those, you have to expend more physical energy to actually produce the sandwich that you've decided you wanted to make. You actually have to go and manipulate your environment and manipulate those resources to put a sandwich together. Everybody following me? I know this sounds like a ridiculous thing to go through. Your will is sufficient to plan what will occur. But your will is not sufficient for accomplishing it. In order to accomplish your will, you have to physically move. You have to exert physical energy. Now, there are some similarities with God's power. Both require an act of the will. God's will, if God's power wants to be used, he has to act in his will. The difference between God's power and your power is that God's power does not need to go anywhere beyond just the act of his will. He doesn't have to actually take that second step that you and I have to take. You have to take the second step, which is go gather all the stuff together, put it all together, and make the sandwich. God doesn't have to do that. He can produce effects merely by desiring or willing those effects to occur. And when God wills it to occur, it occurs. There is no second step where he has to exert himself in some way. When we say that God is omnipotent, what we mean is God has the power to affect change, to produce effects without actually acting. He can produce them simply by the act of his will. Charles Hodgkin, we, beyond very narrow limits, must use means to accomplish our ends. With God, means are unnecessary. He wills, and it is done. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He, by a volition, created the heavens and the earth. Just by merely deciding that's what he wanted to do. 
it required nothing further to affect the change, to produce that. All right. There are some more distinctions here. There's what's called absolute power. If you like Latin, there it is. And ordered power. Absolute power refers to God's ability to do what is not part of his will, yet is still possible for him to do. Um, put in human terms. I chose to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But I have the power to make a ham sandwich. It's not what I chose to do, but I still have that ability, right? I chose to make the PB&J. I could choose to go to Whataburger. God chose to create the universe, this universe, in this world. Absolute power says that God has the ability to create other universes, even though that's not what he decided to do. He could have created other earths, even though that's not what he decided to do. It's within his power. It's just not what he willed to do. Does that make sense? Theologians call that absolute power. Ordered power is the ability to realize whatever is present in his will or counsel merely by exercising his will. Ordered power is what we've been talking about. He doesn't actually have to take an action. He can just accomplish it merely by willing it in himself. All right. This should go pretty quick. Scriptural evidence for absolute power. Genesis 18.14. Again, absolute power is God is able to do beyond what he has already done or what he has willed. Genesis 18. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? The question there has an implied answer. The answer is no. There is nothing that God cannot accomplish if he desired to do it. Now, we say that, and we have to keep it within the confines of his necessary will. Jeremiah, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? There is nothing beyond my ability to accomplish it. If you can conceive of it, God can accomplish it. In light of everything we've already said, though. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? Israel, do you really think that God is just like you? That just because you can't see how God could accomplish this, you don't see how this is possible, that means God cannot do it. Do you actually believe that? Just because... You can't accomplish it. You can't conceive of it. You can't accomplish it. Doesn't mean that God cannot accomplish it. Uh, this is also in the New Testament. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Has God actually turned stones into children of Abraham? No. It's not what he has willed to do but that does not say that God is incapable of doing it. God still has the ability to do so. It's just not what he has decided to do. Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, 
Your mind is not a limitation on God. My ability to comprehend or to imagine is not a limitation for God. God can do far more than what we think he can do. And that should be a good encouragement for prayer. Because a lot of us probably need to up it in prayer and take our requests up a notch. Because we're thinking of God in our terms and thinking that God can only do what we can conceive of. God's power is far beyond our conception. Luke 1.37, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Yes, even a virgin can conceive. That's absolute power. Let's look at ordered power. I only have a couple of verses for this. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Remember, ordered power is God's ability to will something and produce the effect just by willing it. He's in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. If he wants it to occur, it'll happen. And because there is no one and nothing that can hinder him, it's always going to happen. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. There is no place that God cannot accomplish what he wants. All right, let's just sum up all of omnipotence here. Omnipotence means that God is able to perform whatever he wills and that he can perform those things without labor and without exertion. He doesn't have to use means. And if he chooses to use means, he can use those means in a positive way. God chooses to save people through preaching, through evangelism. He doesn't have to. He can abandon those means, and he can accomplish his will without the use of means. He can, he can save people without the use of preachers and evangelists. He doesn't have to use them. He chooses to. Or God can save people in a contrary to the means. How many times have you heard testimonies of people who were saved in weird ways that seem to go against what's normal? Or someone tries to do something and they think they're going to produce one effect, but it has a complete opposite effect. God takes evil actions. Someone said every day. God takes evil actions and he produces good from them. Omnipotence means that no power can resist his power. He has the greatest power. And omnipotence means that he empowers all creatures to do all that they do, and no creature has the ability to do anything independent of God's power. All the power that you have to make the little changes and effects that you produce, all of that comes from him. It's borrowed. Okay, questions on omnipotence or sovereignty? Anything we've talked about today? Yeah, so I would see that from the perspective of God was still producing effects. He's still creating. He's not creating the same way that you would create. 
you know, I, I would say he stopped creating would be the rest. Uh, God has finished creation. He is no longer creating anymore. And so in that sense, yes, he rested. Um, it, it's the same way when you go and it says, the Bible says that God does not slumber or sleep. Right? So that's rest. But it's just, it's an anthropomorphism. He's just bringing himself down so we can understand. No, God did not exert himself in the same way that I would exert myself if I wanted to build a desk. But it's still, in, in one sense, it would still be considered a form of labor, even if it's not the kind of labor we would think about. I don't know if that helps. Does that help? I think, go ahead. I don't think that's saying anything about his nature or his act of omnipotence. I think that's just really explaining him in a way that we can understand it. Good point. Yeah, irresistible grace. How are you going to say God is omnipotent? He has all power. Nobody can resist his power. Oh, except for when it comes to being saved. Then then you can resist it. Happy inconsistencies. Yes, ma'am. I think omnipotence is a great thing to take to the prayer life. Um, because it'll encourage you if God can accomplish anything he wills and you pray his will, that's that's a recipe for some answered prayers. And, and that should really up the prayer life. Anyone else? Yes, sir. to stop. Yeah. 
stop creating. All right. Anyone else? Comments? Questions? Um, I didn't think of that. That's a good point. You know, there's a lot of people say that you can you can hinder what God's will is. You can stop God's will uh, by your words. Um, that's an attack on His omnipotence, but it's also a, a statement that they are God. That they have the power to to affect that kind of change merely by thinking or saying something. And they, yeah, and they fail every time. <laughs> Yep. All right, anyone else? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us, uh, that we have this privilege of coming and studying your attributes, that uh, you have made yourself known to us, and that uh, while we don't understand everything there is to know about you, that we don't understand all of your attributes perfectly and completely, uh, we do find joy in the fact that you are beyond our comprehension. Uh, there is a sense of joy and awe and reverence uh, to knowing that we will never fully comprehend you. Uh, the study of your nature, the study of your person never becomes boring. We'll always be fascinated by who and what you are. And so, Father, this morning we come to worship you, we come to praise you. We ask that you would bless our time of worship this morning, that we would uh, praise you in a way that is pleasing to you, that you would be glorified, that Christ would be exalted. And we ask things, these things in his name. Amen.